When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm a negotiator like you folks. We're negotiators. Do you want to renegotiate deals? We, some of us renegotiate deals. I would say about 99.9. Is there anybody that doesn't renegotiate deals in this room? This room negotiates. I want to renegotiate this room. Perhaps more than any room I've ever spoken to. There is no greater supporter of the Jewish people and the Jewish state than President Donald Trump. When a lot of the Democrats call the president a racist, I think they're doing uh, a disservice to people who suffer because of real racism in this country. Was birtherism racist? Um, look, I wasn't really involved in that. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. All right, you know Senator Elizabeth Warren, Tucker Carlson's pick for president in 2020? Uh, okay. Maybe not exactly, but on Carlson's show last week, he opened by quoting verbatim sections of Warren's economic plan. Carlson also chastised Republicans for voting against their economic interests. Do they really do that? And saying Warren is right on the money with her plan for economic patriotism. Okay, so we have Tucker Carlson stumping for Elizabeth Warren. Dogs for cats, rain falling up, lakes of fire. It sounds like it's time to fire up Momondo and book an L-all flight to Israel for end times. Am I right? Which brings me to today's guest, the dashing public intellectual Mark Oppenheimer. Mark hosts the number one Jewish podcast on iTunes. That's Tablets Unorthodox. He has some thoughts about when church mice like Mike Pence turn Zionist and what Trump is up to with his philo-Semitism. And, you know, other thoughts about Jews and Trump that are not at all third rails. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on Trumpcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Trump and the Jews, the possibilities just multiply the second I start even thinking <laughs> about Trump and Jews and his convert daughter and the Kushner family and their history. I barely know where to start. So thank Hashem that you come from unorthodox and are not afraid of any of these subjects. No, I have waded through the muck of all of these subjects. Trump, you should know, by the way, it's not just Kushner as a son-in-law. I think of his four adult children. I'm getting this somewhat wrong, but like three of his four adult children have married people who are either fully Jewish or half. Jewish. His mashpocha mm. is like filled with Jews at this point. So it's more interesting than people have ever taken notice of. It's like high time we do this episode. I'm so pleased. So I have trouble understanding, honestly, the Russian Jewish trajectory and touch points with New York real estate. So maybe we can start there. When do the sort of Felix Saders and Michael Cohens of the world start both embracing not a German or a kind of proper Upper East, Upper West Side version of Judaism, but a different kind? And how do they come into New York business and particularly real estate? 
let's start with some definitions of the terms here. I forget who said this. It's apocryphally been attributed to lots of New York journalists. But initially, the story you heard was there are two kinds of Jews. There are book Jews and money Jews, right? There's the intellectuals, the Talmud scholars who are broke, and then there's the money Jews who go, you know, make some shekels. And then I've heard it iterated as there are book Jews, money Jews, and street Jews, you know, the fighters, the bruisers, the mobsters. I always throw in that they're mountain Jews, like your hippie deadhead Jews. I grew up with mountain Jews, and I thought they were the only Jews. And I have written about this when I remembering J.D. Salinger, whom I knew a tiny, tiny bit in New Hampshire, and yes, was a mountain Jew. This is a very technical and very useful framework, so I'm glad you brought it up. It's a very important framework that's never actually been articulated in print, but it kind of makes its way around, like, Jewy parties in New York. Like, what kind of Jew are you? And it's a very important way to understand different Jews, and I'm I'm a very sophisticated scholar on this. I'm one of the world's leading experts on on, on sort of radically oversimplified typologies of Jews. And, you know, look, Trump's a hustler. He's a street bruiser. Keep in mind, this is a guy who grew up in Queens. Then he went to the University of Pennsylvania, possibly the Jewiest of all schools, certainly the Jewiest of the Ivy schools. Then he went into New York real estate, which by that point had become pretty Jewy. Historically, Jews didn't do real estate because they had to be able to run when when the Cossacks came from them. So the reason that they were in things like, you know, books or tailoring or jewels was you could take stuff with you, right? So real estate Mm -hmm. was actually not something you did in the Pale of Settlement if you were even allowed to own any land at all. But in New York, by this point, mid-20th century, there are a lot of Jews in real estate. So Trump enters this world where his college friends are Jews. He knew Jews growing up in Queens. And then he gets into the really dishonest, you know, um, underhanded world of New York real estate, where many of the ethical players are Jews, but many of the unethical players are Jews as well. Many of everything are Jews. And then, of course, you need, you know, fairly shady, corrupt fixer lawyers. And the legal world, both ethical and unethical, has lots of Jews in it. So he ended up with a kind of cadre of, as you say, they're not Upper East Side, you know, high-born reform Jews. They're shady street Jews. And, you know, some of them have been have been sort of rinsed and washed by good educations, like Jared Kushner, whose father, of course, went to prison for being a shady street Jew. But look, he attracts sleaze wherever he goes, and it's some of its Gentile sleaze and some of its Jewish sleaze. So many of the Jews he knows are people who have worked with him in these kind of, you know, highly transactional, ethically dubious deals. That's the world he lives in. I went to the University of Virginia, and one summer I just went through the phone book to try to find a lawyer to work for. And I ended up finding this kind of farmer guy, just a very salt-of-the-earth, you know, racist Virginia dude. Classic racist Virginian. Classic racist non-Jew. He was always getting sued like Donald Trump. And though he was a lawyer, although I thought that was kind of sketchy, he also asked me often to get him a, quote, junkyard dog Jew to... Like, you know, pursue his whatever, it's underhanded, legal, whatever they were, shenanigans. And so I was constantly in the phone book, and he really explained to me, just with your same kind of just empirical understanding of Jews, that I should look for Berg and Stein names because he wanted this junkyard dog Jew lawyer. I don't know what he meant by the junkyard dog Jew thing. I mean, entirely what he meant by it. But what I'm understanding from Michael Wolff's book right now, the new one, Siege, is that Trump definitely always needed lawyers, lawyers who both could act on his id, but kind of do it in a buttoned up legal way. The whole lying for Mr. Trump thing, which Michael Cohen talks about. Right. I mean, one of the things you have to understand is that these things always begin with prejudice and historical structures that bar people from certain professions, right? So if you're talking not 10 years ago, but 50 or 60 years ago, 70 years ago, a lot of the really proper white shoe law firms still had histories of anti-Semitism and racism. But there were a lot of talented and smart Jews coming out of law schools, many of you know, who did not have access to the corporate transaction work that they were doing at Patterson Belknap or Davis Polk and Wardwell or Sullivan and Cromwell, right? Mm-hmm. 
And of course, those law firms didn't want to do business with Donald Trump anyway, once it became clear what kind of person he was, Mm -hmm. especially later in his career. So yeah, there's a world of junkyard dog lawyers. They're not just Jewish. Some of them are. But, you know, in New York City, it's always interesting to me when I travel and I see not even the tasteful billboards on the highways, but like the really, the really kind of like, you know, tacky, the the, the poorly made highway billboards for malpractice lawyers and personal injury lawyers. And in certain parts of the country, a lot of those names are Jewish, you know, in greater New York City, for example. But in some of the country, you know, you go down south and I'm always surprised it's all these Gentile names doing that kind of work and no Jews. Mm. And then in certain parts of the country, it'll be Italian names, a lot of Italian Mm -hmm. names. But these are people who were barred from the partnership track at elite law firms because of prejudice. And so they end up Mm -hmm. in a kind of swamp doing work for smaller or less savory real estate transactions. What's interesting is the Michael Cohen's world are not really book Jews, right? They're not intellectuals. These are not people you ever hire as as a law professor. As Donald Trump is one of the least intellectual, least reflective, you know, this is a guy who doesn't read at all. These are people who, yeah. who were attracted. His A guy like Michael Cohen is was attracted to the profession because either he had some sense this is high prestige for, you know, a kid from a, you know, from a Jewish background. But really what he is is he's a bruiser. And the law became for him a weapon of almost physical contact sport because he's not actually – in his nature, somebody who wants to sit with books. He's someone who wants to get out there and slug people. So it's a kind of perversion of the law into that. Let's talk a little bit about physical violence, because there's a lot of language of physical violence around Trump and co. But as far as I can tell, the only person who's ever laid a hand on anyone is Felix Sater. So Michael Cohen threatens, you know, I'm going to do something disgusting to you. It's possible, as Stormy Daniels alleges, it seems quite possible that someone said, you know, beautiful daughter there wouldn't want anything to happen to her and that that person might have been working at Trump's or Michael Cohen's behest. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the threats of violence for all these are described as street Jews. I'm not totally sure that Michael Cohen, born in Lawrence, you know, in Long Island, who went to Shoal there. I'm not sure that he actually would throw a punch. What do you think? Oh, well, no, none of the Trump people really would. I mean, that's why they have to pick on on women, right? It's not incidental to their misogyny that there's a kind of cowardice in actually confronting other people, right? I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a reason that Trump picks all his fights on Twitter, which really is the last refuge of the coward. And, um, you know, pick fights with people whom you aren't looking at and, and don't have to Wait, see. hey, I spend a lot of time on the last refuge of a coward. I know you <laughs> do. And Virginia, as someone who's followed your career for two decades now, I feel like your affection for the Internet is the third rail between us because I think I – you know, I'm, I'm, I've come out the other side of that. I think, I think the internet's all bad, but that's okay. We could still be friends. So he picks his fights on Twitter. Narcissism and cowardice go very much hand in hand, right? I yes. Mean that, that there's a, it takes courage and it takes strength to be introspective and reflective and undefended emotionally. And he's mm-hmm. highly defended and non-reflective and non-introspective. Now, are some of those people also physically brave? Yeah, but it's not surprising to me that I don't think he is. I also don't think that Trump, I mean, this is all incidental to lots of things, but it so happens if we're talking about like what makes up that crazy psyche. It's interesting to me that I don't think he's particularly physically vigorous either. He's certainly less athletic than Bush, who was a good athlete, than Obama, who was a good athlete. Donald Trump, of course. He went to a military-flavored cosplay school. Right, that's and, right. And, you know, he cheats at golf, and it looks like he spends most of it in the golf cart. And it is actually stunning, and almost we don't talk about it very much, but, you know, past presidents and presidential candidates, Al Gore, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, these guys are, you know, if you peel the politics off it, they're all incredibly great-looking, like, athletic, healthy, hearty, obviously Obama 
if but for everything else, we might be talking about how we have such an unwell figure in the Oval Office. I mean, physically unwell. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking that actually he may not make it through four years, let alone eight physically. But then again, he doesn't drink or smoke. So he has that going for him. Right. But no, I think that's right. Look, there are various ways you can bully people. You can bully people physically. You can bully them by trying to tarnish their reputations. You, you know, He bullies people with money and power, mm-hmm. the, the power he's accumulated mm-hmm. through money or the illusion of money. And also he has had lawyers bully people. But no, he's not someone who's interested in his own life, it seems to me, with other men, let me bracket that, with physically bullying them. It's not something that I, don't, that I think he feels capable of doing. But hiding yeah. behind people who have the illusion of power, like real estate power, which is law, zoning, money, uh, finance, is something he is comfortable with. It's also funny that, you know, there have been times when I think during the campaign, someone rushed the stage he was on and he, you know, was very startled and scared and like eek a mouse about the whole thing. And we ended (laughs) up all saying that, you know, he's physically cowardly and, you know, he dodged the draft and that guy couldn't throw a punch, which is pretty funny because then we are are implying that there's something awesome about a guy that just can clock another guy of great autocrats. They go in all different directions. Saddam Hussein was actually a killer. (laughs) You know, right. I like right. kill people with his bare hands. All of a sudden, liberals are saying, like, how come you didn't go fight in Vietnam, man? Man up. Yes, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But then you have Vladimir Putin and Ben Wittes stateside telling us about their jujitsu skills. There is a streak of some kind of like very primitive, atavistic sort of mano a mano thing of who could take who in it if it actually came down to it. I think we're like really picturing end times now where it might come down to, you know, like the Avengers or something where. You know, you might have to show down you, Iron Man, might have to show down with Thanos, Trump. (laughs) By the way, like physical courage is such an interesting thing, right? Because the people I know who put themselves out there regularly as targets for physical abuse, most obviously are in some neighborhoods, people who are who are obviously queer in whatever way. Right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And then and then in other neighborhoods, people who are obviously observant Jews. I mean, to be to be a Hasidic Jew and walk through a lot of neighborhoods even in America, looking like that, especially as a man, because the women aren't as easily spotted as being as being religious, um, mm-hmm. but to walk through neighborhoods, airports, sporting venues, wherever you go, the bar, looking like a Hasidic Jew or an ultra-Orthodox Jew of another flavor is to invite pretty regular barrage of people driving by in cars yelling names at you and then sometimes people throwing stuff at you and sometimes people jumping you. And yes. they keep doing it. They keep doing it. They don't say, well, screw it. I'll put on a baseball cap and wear some more brightly colored clothes. And, you know, I've walked with friends who are obvious religious Jews. I was once with a friend when he got that kind of abuse from a passerby in a car. And the toughness of him, I mean, he just yelled after the car. He's like, why don't you slow down and say that to my face? You know, <laughs> he, he, recognized the, he recognized the cowardice of people who shout those threats from speeding cars and how actually cowardly and scared most of those people are. And he's this guy who just like walks around looking like that all the time. You know, meanwhile, Trump has to like have a team of five blow drying and dyeing his hair for his vanity, right? So it's really interesting. When you talk about anti-Semitic hazing, it would seem that Trump would be on the hazer side of that because he tends not to confront people in their faces, but obviously he's used racist language since, you know, he was in diapers and about black and brown Americans. But somehow the Trump organization found itself in this, you said before we started, sort of philo-Semitic place. It seems a bit overdetermined, maybe, because once you're dealing with Russian oligarchs, Russian speakers in America are both who mostly grew up 
studiedly secular atheists in the Soviet Union might be ethnically Jewish, they might not be. But at least in New York, they seem to have made kind of common cause in the fact that they all speak Russian. I don't know. Anyway, but that's so that's one way, possibly, because he was like trying to deal with Russians. He ended up dealing with Russian Jews because inevitably in New York. But there are all uh, many other ways. I mean, how he ended up having a Jewish daughter is still a story that I can't tell a straight story about that. So tell me about Trump's philo-Semitism. One of the interesting things to think about when you think about anti-Semitism is how is it like other bigotries? And how is it different from them? And there's so many ways in which it's like anti-black bigotry, anti-brown bigotry, anti-queer bigotry, like so many ways that it's just bigotry's bigotry. It's ignorant. It oversimplifies. It's it's cruel. It ultimately reflects a kind of insecurity on the part of the person who holds the conviction. But there is something special about anti-Semitism pretty much throughout time, um, which is that whereas your standard issue anti-black bigot thinks of blacks as less capable and inferior, thinks of them as, you know, stupid, uh, unlettered, basically incapable of ever perpetrating a conspiracy, <laughs> the kind mm-hmm. of shrewdness or cunning that it would take to, 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 to pull one over on, on proper white Aryan or Anglo people is just n- it's just not within their grasp. The, yeah. the typical anti-Semite thinks of Jews as more capable than other people, right? Hmm. So mm-hmm. they have special powers, sort of alchemical or like hermetic powers. Yeah. Um, they can perpetrate conspiracies. They can keep stuff secret. They speak multiple languages. They have their own private language. They have an international cabal. And, you know, you can go way back. They were powerful enough to kill the Lord, to kill God, right? So. Yeah. Anti-Semitic tropes tend to posit the Jew as worrisomely powerful rather than mm-hmm. worrisomely stupid or disgusting or unclean or whatever, which is which or is dangerous or big, physically dangerous right? or physically dangerous. Right. Maybe maybe a black person is physically dangerous. Maybe a gay person will despoil you with their sexually transmitted disease. These are the the bigoted tropes against other groups. The, yeah. the, the bigoted trope against Jews is they will they will trick you. They will connive against you. They will use their subterfuge and their cunning that essentially they're more powerful and in some ways mm. better. Yeah. So. So what this means is, um, you know, which is why you absolutely have to cleanse them. You can't just subjugate them. You know, if you're Hitler, you have to cleanse them. Your your community has to be free of them Hmm. because there's Hmm. no way you can – I mean, Hitler could have said let's enslave them and put them to work. But that almost seems laughable to the anti-Semitic mind. Like they'll they'll turn Hmm. the tables on you if you let them into your factory, right? They'll end up running the factory. Right. So you have to cleanse yourself of them or you have to make common cause and put their powers to your own ends. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you have someone like a Donald Trump, right? He actually and I don't I don't I would not use the term anti-semitic with him, but what he shares with the anti-semitic mind is a sense of the Jews as special and separate and powerful. So there was mm-hmm. the famous line when he was I think was he speaking to a bunch of of Jewish accountants. He had this, some line way back when when he said, you know, I only want people like you with the little hats to handle my money. Basically, hmm. guys with y- mm-hmm. only guys with yarmulkes can be my accountants, and I'm not getting that story mm-hmm. exactly right, but it's a real story. You can go, you can go find it, and that's basically that sort of sums it up, right? Which is like, Jews are the guys who have real. I mean, Trump doesn't have book smarts. Trump can't read his own balance sheets. Jews right. can read his balance sheets. Jews can write the legal proceedings, right? Yeah. Now that doesn't mean he wants his daughter to marry Michael Cohen, but then you take the Jewish mind and put it in an attractive, you know, preppy casing like Jared Kushner, and why wouldn't that be the perfect son-in-law? But this leads some people into a mistake. It leads some Jewish Republicans or Jewish Trump supporters to say, how could he possibly be anti-Semitic? He has Jews in his family. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, that's not really the answer. Maybe he's an anti-Semite, maybe he's not, but it's perfectly consistent for someone who has icky 
and and worrisomely views of Jews to welcome Jews into his family because the views yeah. are that Jews are special and powerful and maybe capable of perpetrating conspiracies and and a, a separate alien people. But if you find a good-looking, charming one who will pledge fealty to me, he'd be a terrific son-in-law. That's all yes. perfectly consistent. Now, what that means is, just to wrap up, that when you know when totalitarianism comes, whether if it came in some universe, whether Trump was its agent or whether he offloaded it to Victor Orban in Hungary or to Putin or whatever, mm. what it means mm. is, of course, he'd save his son-in-law and his Jewish grandchildren, right? Of course, he's not going to send them to the gas chambers again in some sort of horrible end-time fantasy world, right? Yeah. But it doesn't yes. mean that he would have any particular compassion for the Jewish cobbler or the low-level Jewish insurance salesman or stockbroker who who can who can't do anything for him. It doesn't mean that at all. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I think the Mueller report dropped right before Passover, right? And, you know, since I'm no longer Jewish <laughs> and there were a lot of Jewish friends and lawyers who really wanted to read it immediately, right. I offered my services to give them like oral summaries to read it <laughs> if they couldn't read it as a kind of Shabbos Mueller report goy. They were cooking matzo balls as you were sitting there like highlighting the Mueller report in their kitchen. <laughs> yeah, basically. well, that, Jed Sugarman, actually some friends said they really couldn't get to it, but they really wanted to get to it. And so I was trying to think of ways that were kosher <laughs> for Passover that I could awesome. get it to them and, Bless you know, you. like prove my worth to them. But the thing of Gentiles being useful to Jews and Jews being useful to the Trumps of the world, I think is interesting and certainly doesn't mitigate bigotry on either side. Jared Kushner is certainly useful to Trump. Absolutely. Look, plutocrats will do business. I mean, they're, you know, some of them have principles, but some of them don't. I mean, some plutocrats will do business with anybody. So Trump's world is his world of fellow rich people or allegedly rich people, since he may not, in fact, himself be rich. So it's not surprising that, I mean, you know, the Kushners to him are fundamentally, first and foremost, fellow rich people. It's also mm-hmm. perfectly acceptable to him that they have what he surely takes to be, you know, Yiddish cops, right? Jewish brains. That's that's mm, incidental, yes. and and it's a, it's a plus. It's an added benefit. So we've had Vicky Ward on the show as a book out about the Kushners right now, and like me, she's spent a lot of time among Jews, but then she, like me, gets a lot of things wrong. I mean, among observant Jews, she gets some things wrong, but she does visit something that I think is a surprise to people who don't grow up around Orthodox communities or don't have much experience with them that there's a commitment among some Holocaust surviving families. She does give, I think, them their propers, the Kushner family, for having survived the Holocaust in the most tenacious, ferocious way possible. I mean, really, it is one of the survival stories involving digging tunnels. Young women, new mothers, digging tunnels with their hands. They bring it through a kind of ferocity that's hard to put into words. That's, you know, everything's going to be taken away from you. You have to constantly think like an immigrant, never go soft. You know, she says, don't wait for someone to let you into Harvard. You have to take it. And that that was sort of the idea there. 
How can you sort of illuminate that a little more? Because Michael Cohen has pointed out he's from a family of Holocaust survivors. That's part of the reason he feels like, or at least in his statement of penance, he says by working for a racist like Donald Trump, he betrayed his family in a certain way. As usual, the Holocaust looms large over families like the Cohens, the Seders, the Kushners. Tell us a little bit more about that, not just being Russian Jewish, but in particular coming from a family of survivors. I mean, it's an important question. I think it's so tricky, right? Because first of all, there's this very broad question of who's a survivor and who's not. And that's something we've talked about ah. on, on on our podcast, Unorthodox, right? And I actually don't know the Cohen family story specifically. There are people who will say, and I'm not judging, I'm not prejudging any of these particular narratives. I'm not from a family of survivors. I'm from a family of on both sides of very fortunate people who came here long before the Holocaust. And and we don't know the names of any of our distant cousins who were lost. Um, so it's it's not really, I mean, my co-host, Stephanie Butnick, like her grandparents are survivors and she's, I take to be much more authoritative on, on these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very tricky. Like, first of all, is everyone who was in Europe and who would have died had they not gotten out a survivor? You know, if you saw what was coming and in 1938, you managed to get out to Australia, are you a survivor? Um, if you uh, were on the kinder transport and you got to England as a child, but were never in the mm-hmm. camps, are you a survivor? Are you only a survivor mm-hmm. if you, what if you were in a ghetto, but never in one of the camps? Or are you only mm-hmm. a survivor if you were in one of the camps, right? I don't quarrel with anyone who says they survived it. The trauma of the Holocaust looms very, very large. I always want to make the point to people who are criticizing Israel or having any discussion about Israel that you're talking about a country that not exclusively, but uh, heavily was settled by people who had just narrowly escaped genocide. And we have to, you know, imagine building a country with people who narrowly escaped genocide, right? And, mm-hmm. and then, one, mm. then, wondering, then wondering why they're concerned when their political opponents say things about wiping out the Jews, why they don't just say, oh, that's just political rhetoric, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. now for Michael Cohen growing up in the five towns of Long Island to say, well, the Holocaust made me do it, I think is pretty, Hmm. not that he said it quite like that, but it's pretty sick, right? Because actually, no, the Holocaust or the memory of the Holocaust didn't make you do it. Also, you grew up on Long Island. Also, there are many, many, many people who had very close brushes with death who ended up in free lands, then led beautifully ethical and generous spirited lives. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you didn't, Michael... (laughs) Having grown up amongst creature comforts on Long Island, the fact that you chose to be a bad person, if we at all believe in free will, then that's pretty much on you. I will say in his statement to Congress when he says, you know, he gives these three reasons that he was wrong to have worked for Trump. Um, and the right. first is Trump was a racist. And this will bring us, by the way, to Rashida Tlaib and the broader conversation about anti-Semitism in, in Congress and racism. But the reason he gives for now regretting having worked for Trump, whom he defines first and foremost as a racist. So he's he even though those aren't the things that, you know, got Cohen in trouble with him, you know, the lying, the campaign finance, all those things, the exaggeration of his resources, the diminishment of his fortunes, all that lying is not the first thing that makes Michael Cohen feel like he's betrayed his family and working for Trump. It's his racism and it's racism toward black people, not his anti-Semitism. But somehow the connection he draws, and it might be just as tenuous as what you spelled out, but is that as the child of survivors, that that's where he broke bad, that he could have been true to his family and not worked for a racist. And then he gives examples of the racist language Trump used. But instead, he, you know, he broke bad. And essentially, I mean, it seems as though he broke with tradition. He gave Hitler a posthumous victory. He married, you know, outside the faith, whatever. It sounds like that a little bit more than it does. Our family was traumatized by the Holocaust. So I became a bad person. 
it's interesting there because that's something you hear among sort of liberal social justice-minded Jews a lot, which is that our own history should make us less likely to be racist toward others. I'm not sure that empirically, I mean, A, I'm not sure it's true. I mean, it, Torah says it, right? You know, because you were strangers in a strange land, right? So you, we, we were yeah. supposed to have a special a special receptivity to to welcoming and, and caring for um, the stranger. And by the way, the stranger, the word for stranger is the same as the word for convert, care, right? Which is the stranger yeah. might decide to join, might decide to join us and be amongst us. And that's something we honor. You know, strangers are always, they might have Jewish souls. And even if they don't, we have to treat mm. them kindly. That is a social justice narrative to which as a Jew, I subscribe. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that Michael Cohen, as a sort of like mercenary Republican-affiliated crook, yeah. would reach for that one. It strikes me as maybe opportunistic because he knows that it has a certain kind of purchase in, you know, bien pensant liberal America. <laughs> yeah. But as an empirical matter, lots of Holocaust survivors, like lots of all human beings, are racists. <laughs> and look, you know, one could turn Cohen's thinking on its head and say, when you've nearly been wiped out by a specific ethnic group, it causes you to think in broadly ethnocentric terms. Mm-hmm, and, you know, mm-hmm. there are certainly there's certainly lots of Holocaust survivors who would never buy anything made by Germans again. And many of them whose brush with death leads them to think in pretty black and white terms about the possibility of peace with the Arab world. And that those are perfectly understandable reactions to a brush with death. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, I think Cohen reached for a particular narrative there, but mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I think that I'm sort of willing to normatively say that it's a good narrative. Right. I mean, it definitely was very patterned. Someday I just want to sit with you and go through his whole statement because it's sort of astonishing. If he even wrote it, if it wasn't his PR team who wrote it. Exactly. Uh, Lanny Davis's team. But it led to, and this sort of goes to this point of, well, how can Trump be anti-Semitic if he has Jews in the family? It led to Mark Meadows. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but it's sort of trotting out a low-level staffer of Trump's who happens to be black and saying he can't be racist because this woman is here, Rashida Tlaib took umbrage at that and said this kind of tokenism is ridiculous right, that's right. then right and then mark meadows got weepy and said how could you call me a racist and then turned you. for like turned for absolution to elijah cummings to say like you know forgive me father can't you tell them that i'm a great like great guy because i've suffered in different ways and thus i'm not racist and um elijah cummings sort of <laughs> Like pro forma said, you're all right, Mark Meadows. And it was like he 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 like briefly felt like a black man had told him he was OK and he could sort of sit and be with that. That was such a weird but, bit I mean, of theater. That was because. Oh, my God. Know. The combination of, you know, Elijah Cummings with all the moral authority, Rashida Tlaib new in the new in the Congress and, and you know, making her bones. Mark Meadows please father forgive me for the right. ra- the racism of my people and uh, and then michael cohen kind of it's in his weird way presiding over all of it as like having the moral authority of a holocaust surviving family was yeah just about as weird as it gets totally weird we had to do a seven-part podcast on it and so divorced from policy from serving the american people you know like who, who cares i cared not a whit about any of it yes exactly it did show me though how much white men in congress among the republicans continue to need to both express their racism and be constantly forgiven for it and absolved of it, which is just, they're really asking a lot. To me, it shows the sort of the lack of utility of these words, right? I mean, um, I mean, certainly someone like, certainly a lot of the Republican people in Congress, men and women, and some Democrats have to be called out for their bigotry. Um, at this point, sadly, the words racist and anti-Semite have lost a ton of meaning. And that's partly the fault of, it's, it's the fault of people on the right and the left, actually. I mean, there are things that people on the left call 
racist, which are not racist. I mean, there's certain policy disagreements now, which they will say are racist because they perceive structural racism in taking a particular policy position. And so they're using a term that, you know, used to have real opprobrium for, for human beings who practiced or preached bigotry. If, in fact, like overturning Obamacare is an act of racism, then, you know, all of a sudden, like every vote you cast is potentially racist. And I mean, I long for the days when it when these terms meant something a little more specific about the way a human being conducted themselves. But we've probably lost those those meanings. I talked to Carol Cadwallader about disinformation and was reminded that language around race is hyper arousing and anti-Semitism. I mean, I can even feel like cortisol rising in me when I'm trying to find right. my way talking about them. You live in this space where you talk about the things that, you know, most make people swoon and blow up and, you know, just get right at their like lizard brains. But the hyper arousing language around race, and I think, you know, not to dwell on this too much, but you see this in Mark Meadows. Are you calling me a racist? This has something to do with my child, something. I don't know what it was, but he just became dissolved. And that language, hyper-arousing language, because we're biological humans who like stimulation, spreads really right. fast. It's really hard to reduce. I think this MIT study, yes, yeah, said that to the extent that something disgusts you or just, you know, just gets you on your high horse. You know, like, yep. are you saying that because I'm a woman uh, or Jewish, uh, you know, you just right. it's like a mortal threat. To some extent, people want to live in that register. They just want the sensation of it. It's very addictive. And we live in a society that will ply it all the time. I mean, I think my big thing these days, I'm always always thinking back to, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and how much less aroused we were all the time. Um, yes. You know, yeah. that, that, you know, I always I make the point um, that, you know, when I first got out of college and, you know, about the time you did, I think, and we were writing pieces as sort of young journalists, you'd publish something in you know, the New Republic or whatever, and it would run in print. And then you wouldn't mm -hmm. get any response for three weeks until they would tell you, well, there were four letters to the editor. <laughs> and, and yes. you know, then one of the, they'd send you the letters to the editor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the mail, maybe they'd fax them to you, maybe nascent email. And then one of the letters would, one of the letters would run in the print magazine, and maybe you'd get to write a response to it. And then it would all disappear, never to be heard from again. Like that was literally right, the exactly. cycle. That was the cycle of, of call and response in the journalism world in 1996, 97, 98, and, and, and even it, in the early years yeah. of the internet. And and that meant, I mean, remember how exciting it was to turn to the letters section of the New York Review of Books and see, like, who's attacking mm. whom? Who's attacking whom from, from a month ago? Remember when, you know, yes. uh, Elaine Scarry wrote that piece a month ago? <laughs> oh, my God. Let's see what Stephen Pinker had to say about it. And... That was exciting. It was thrilling. Yes, and it was very, you know, my esteemed colleague kind of writing. Right, right. It was not and Virginia, does your mother have any children who don't have brain damage? Or like, watch out, <laughs> I'm going to do something disgusting to you, which is the level of collegiality right now. Yeah, and I think that sort of the the hyping of, the wor of words, of those, you know, high cortisone words like anti-Semite and racist is part of that culture. I, I'm mm. at the point, like, I don't... I don't actually worry much about who's an anti-Semite and who's not, actually. I mean, I, I yeah. try not to use the terms very much. And actually, I'm not really concerned with what's in people's hearts. I figure that there's a lot of dark things in people's hearts. I'm much more concerned about, like, what it means for the safety of my children. And some of what's dark in people's hearts means nothing for the safety of my children. My children will be just as safe even if somebody thinks that, you know, 
such and such about Jews. And then there are other people yeah. who what they think about Jews has to do with the guns they purchase or the the policies they push. And I really worry about it. But to me, that's much more. I don't expect to rid the world of of negative feelings. I think we always have yes. them. And the question is, how do you manage them? And I think one thing that's horrible about Trump isn't that he feels some of this stuff, but that he feels so free to kind of say it and project it and, and has so so little kind of He's so incontinent about it all. Yeah, I think that's right. Thank you for that image. So, Mark, the perpetual pre-Trump conversation about Jews in America is, will Jews continue with the social justice story, stranger to strange land? We narrowly avoided complete eradication in Europe. And now we're here to, you know, here in the U.S. or elsewhere in the diaspora to save others. Or will they move to the right, the thing that people have either dreaded or embraced for, you know, 25 years or 30 years, maybe, right? The New York intellectual is longer than that. It seems right. like the Jews in America are always already moving to the right, but never kind of landing there. And we never get a neat proportion that, you know, 25% right. of Jews are Republicans or 30 or 70, and it's growing and it's going to be all of all Jews soon. What do you think about that? You know, there's outspoken support by Sheldon Adelson and others for Trump. But does that mean anything for rank and file Jewish voters? Okay, most Jewish voters probably haven't heard of Sheldon Adelson, right? Let's be clear about that. Most human beings, the stuff we talk about all the time, the air we yeah. breathe, you know, I always say like most people have the relationship to politics that I have to the Super Bowl, which is I find out three days before the Super Bowl who's playing in it. I watch it, especially with my oldest daughter, who's a huge NFL fan and requires that I watch it with her. But I don't know till three days before. That's most people's relationship to elections. It's a little yes. better in presidential years, but especially in off years and even in presidential years, they tune in a few days, a week, maybe a month before. Um, and that's that. And they're not interested in casino magnates who donate to Trump or don't. That said, look, Republicans are always hoping, they always figure, it used to be, well, Jews are financially affluent. When will they start voting like affluent voters? The problem is that now affluent voters are trending more left, more blue. And so now the question is, now Republicans are saying, when will they start voting like Zionists? Because the Republican hmm. Party is substantially more Zionist than the Democratic Party at this point in certain ways, I think. That could start happening. I think, look, you know, I'm looking at, you know, at, at sort of our best statistics for, of course, we don't know what the Jewish vote is or how to even define it. But based on exit polls and other things, Trump got about 25 percent of the Jewish vote, which was not as good as Romney, who got 30 percent. It was better than McCain, who got about 20, 22 percent. Jews really liked Obama, as it turns out. Um, and... You know, Trump is is so loathsome. I mean, Jews also are educated voters, right? And educated voters don't like Trump. So there's a lot of things in play. To me, the real question is when it's not Trump anymore, who is who is so repugnant to educated and affluent voters, right? When it's not Trump, but, you know, some other less polarizing Republican who is really, really strong on Israel for the Jews who still care. And if the Democratic Party really seems to have been Ilhan Omarized, uh, in mm -hmm. that there's certain things, certain really insensitive things you can say about uh, yoking Jews to a nefarious version of Israel, um, mm -hmm. and the Democrats won't won't um, ostracize that. Then, right. um, then you could see a world in which you know thirty thirty, in which I think you start getting thirty five to forty percent. Uh, votes for the Republicans. Now, it should be said that Reagan got 40% of the Jewish vote in 1980 um, and 30% hmm. in 84. He was very, um, if you go back and look at the numbers, Nixon did 35%. Jews used to be much more up for grabs. Eisenhower got 40% against Stevenson in 1956. Hmm. Hmm. So, Really what happens is that um, there seem to be certain characteristics of certain – so interestingly, who did very, very badly? What I would call the sort of schwach 
Democratic candidate. Shvach is Yiddish for weak. It's like weak, nebishy, uh-huh. ineffectual. Carter, oh, yeah. Mondale, McGovern, very badly amongst Jews. Uh-huh. Which is interesting because if our view is that the Jewish voter is this kind of New York Upper West Side intellectual, well, they loved McGovern. But in reality, here's the thing. Jews benefit from a kind of centrist stability. Jews fare very poorly historically. 3,000 years, we fare very poorly under monarchs, fascists, and communists. We don't want totalitarians um, because we don't want populists because when those people come, when those people unleash useful populist sentiment in the form of violence, the mm-hmm. violence comes for the Jews. So wait, so does that mean that the Jewish voters and whether or not that word is a proxy for educated voters or urban voters, I'm still not totally clear, or prosperous voters. We're not necessarily talking about an ethnic identity entirely. But do you believe that Jews vote adaptively and that to think adaptively is to refer on some level explicitly or implicitly to Holocaust history and the history of anti-Semitism? In other words, even if the rise of populism augurs badly for Jews historically, do people take that to the polls? Yeah. I mean, I think, yes. I mean, I think we're very resistant to people we see as, I mean, what we want is a kind of center-left stability. And so Trump, despite being super pro-Israel, right, he did 24% among Jews. That's pretty low, actually. You know, similarly, the kind of what was taken to be the lefty, almost utopian, peacenik vibe of McGovern, Jews didn't like either and went hmm. more strongly for Nixon than they had in 1960. I mean, that's a really interesting one, right? They, they Nixon got 18% of Jewish vote against Kennedy. But then um, in 72, he got 35% against McGovern. So how do you explain that difference? Uh, Twice as well when he was running against someone who was perceived to be a kind of soft dove as against, I mean, Jews loved Kennedy, the sort of like center-left, cosmopolitan, but security-minded Democrat is, and we loved, and they loved, you know, um, Henry Jackson, Scoop Jackson, right? So, and those people also tend, those kind of candidates also tend to be favorable toward Israel, not necessarily for eschatological end time religious reasons, but for sort of stability in the Middle East, who's our best ally there reasons. Everyone likes to talk about eschatology. So let's go to it, the study of the afterlife. I can't make ads or tales of what smart religious Jews think about this unholy alliance with messianic Mike Pence types. You want to know what I think about it? Yes. What do you think? It's super transactional. It's super opportunistic. I was once actually on an airline flight with a guy who was the head of a major Jewish philanthropy in Canada, and he was trying to sell me on this alliance. And what he said is, he said, in Canada, you know, where everyone is sort of, they don't have any particular warmth for Israel. The liberals are squishy about this stuff. The only people who understand why Israel matters are the evangelical Christians of Canada, who are a much smaller percentage of Canadians. And what he was saying is they get it. They get it. They get it for different reasons, um, Mm -hmm. but they get it. Look, here's the thing. What Ilhan Omar gets wrong about the Israel lobby is less that it's powerful. I mean, it is powerful, if not as powerful as she thinks, than that it's Jewish. I mean, the Israel lobby is largely propelled by the votes. You know, I, first of all, I should say the sort of hard right pro-Israel lobby. I don't like using the term Israel lobby. Um, mm-hmm. But it's largely propelled by the votes and the sentiments of evangelical Christians. And if you look at who their most reliable Congress people are, there are people from districts with, with scarcely a Jew, but lots of evangelical Christians. And those people have kind of religious reasons for support. You know, they think that in the end times, this, the return of 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 Jesus Christ will be in the Middle East and he will ingather the peoples and a certain number will have to convert for, you know, the kingdom of heaven to reign on earth. In this vision, lots of Jews die and lots of Jews convert. So it's not a good vision for Jews. 
But in mm. the short term, in the 21st century, it means they're very supportive of Israel. Um, mm -hmm. The whole thing kind of sickens me. I think it's a bad alliance. I think it's a, a religiously heretical alliance. Um, I think it's bad Judaism, but it's it's good for the Republican coalition. I do like to talk about religion qua religion. So tell me why you think it's it's heresy that not just unsavory because some of these people are Mike Pence and Sheldon Adelson. But tell me why you think it's heretical and, and bad faith. I mean, look, a lot of Christians, by no means all, there are different theologies around this, but a lot of Christians ultimately want Jewish identifying Judaism to disappear. If not now, then, uh, you know, in the end times. And mm -hmm. I think that I think that forming alliances and giving giving sucker and favor and appearing on deuses with and helping in the fundraising for people who ultimately think that we that our continued existence is a theological error and that it would be better for us if we all got baptized. I think it's self-abasing. I think it's, you know, humiliating. And mm -hmm. I think it's hmm. um, I think it lacks honor. I, I really do. I think it lacks honor and integrity. I mean, this is something that we often don't want to talk about. One of the ways you keep the peace in pluralist America is often by pretending that Christians aren't trying to convert Jews. And a lot of Christians are trying to convert Jews. A lot of them have a theology that, I mean, I had a friend whom I went to Yale graduate school with who used to lead summer seminars for the Southern Baptist Convention on how to evangel how to proselytize to Jews. Yeah. You know, the idea that it's it's the high bar to become Jewish and a, and, a, and a low bar because it's sales to become Christian, you know, no need to be circumcised, no need to be to observe any of the mitzvot. We'll just compress it down into love and, and we don't monitor that anyway is interesting. And also, you know, churches that pride themselves on, I think the Episcopal Church now says radical hospitality. You don't even have to be baptized to take communion. You know, just wow. how, how, how few requirements can we have, mostly towards bringing back kind of lapsed religious people back to the church. Sure. But the lowering of the bar is such the American way. You know, it's like, let's make this very welcoming. Um, and part of what's frightening about Judaism is it's not all that. It's it's hard. It's hard to, um, you know, to become Jewish. And in some cases, you kind of can't get there from here. But Chabad has done this other thing that, you know, either seems you know, quite welcoming. This is the the proselytizing Russian, what starts in the 1860s. The point is it proselytizes. And to some people that looks terrifying and like sales and propaganda. But to others of us, you know, those are the only people that invite you to Shabbat dinner if you're Christian or if you, you know, you, your mother's not Jewish. And that seems like hospitable, not nefarious. Right. I mean, so the, the Chabad Lubavitch movement, um, which is a, a, a Hasidic sect, the first thing to say is their goal is not to make Christians into Jews, just to clarify, right? And you know this. Yes. Their goal is to return lapsed Jews to more observance. And they would say their goal is actually just to do mitzvot, to do perform commandments, get people to do good deeds, especially Jews. I have no problem with with that. Uh, you know, it's funny. There's a kind of liberal Jewish myth that Jews don't proselytize. And there's nothing theologically erroneous about Jews proselytizing. It's just that in the early Christian era, especially after Constantine, it became illegal for Jews to proselytize. And so they killed us when we did it. So uh. in much of, you know, once you get to medieval and early modern Europe, you have situations in which it's illegal for Jews to seek Christian converts and it's illegal for Christians to convert. So it's not that Jews wouldn't <laughs> enjoy reaching out to Christians for converts, but we have 
a thousand years of us getting murdered for doing it, and the Christians who joined us took their own hands and their own lives into their hands. So that's just worth clarifying, right? Like in principle, I, th I think Jews should do more proselytism. I think they're people who would lead rewarding, integrated lives as Jews who don't know it yet, who might appreciate the message. But Chabad doing outreach to, to Jews to make them closer to the tradition, I think is fine. They're, it's highly controversial within Judaism, but I don't really see the problem. Then again, I like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses because they're trying to help me. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer is one of the hosts of the top Jewish podcast, Unorthodox, available wherever fine podcasts are sold. You got to subscribe. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's so much fun. And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Find us on Twitter and share your thoughts. We can take anything, even criticism. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're at it, sign up for Slate Plus. Get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's, by my calculations, Zlotties a day. A Slate Plus membership gets you all of Slate's podcasts ad-free and wondrous perks like discounts to our live shows. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Avishai Artsy. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.